Let's pray, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the treasures of your holy word. May we receive their truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Moving into the seventh commandment here. And I'll do some introductory material on this really important uh, topic. And then we'll exposit verses 15 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, before I uh, read our scripture passage, uh, Exodus 20 verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 15. This is God's word. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. For do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Our culture is morbidly sexualized. We live today in what one social commentator called the public undressing of America. There's an interesting movie that came out not too long ago called The Time Machine. And in one scene, the scientist who invented the time machine suddenly, accidentally, starts racing into the future. And the special effects of racing into the future are are very interesting and very kind of cool as they show... Trees growing and falling down and dying and rivers cutting through valleys very quickly. But they also have a little clip where they cut to a a department store window and they show a dress. And the dress starts out on the ground and as the decades go by, the dress works its way up the legs of the mannequin very quickly. Even the the non-Christian people that made the movie recognize what, as time goes on, we're becoming more and more immodest, more and more immoral, more and more comfortable with the public undressing of America. As cultures become more godless, they become more undressed and more sexually immoral, more immodest. I took a class when I was in seminary called Folk Religions. And it was taught by a guy that had been a pioneering missionary in the Congo and in a couple other places. And we studied the primitive sort of religious beliefs of cultures where the gospel's never been. And those cultures always have certain things in common. When the gospel begins to bear fruit and people first start repenting and coming to Christ, missionaries, no matter where they are in the world, whether it's the New Hebrides Islands in the Pacific or in Central Africa or South America or wherever, they always have to tell people three things. They always have to do this. Number one, stop slashing up your bodies. Number two, stop killing each other. And number three, stop being sexually depraved and put some clothes on. 
The rising tide of disrespect to the image of God in our bodies, the sexual depravity of our culture, and the rise of and scourge and pervasiveness of pornography, and its unimaginable trail of ruined marriages, ruined bodies, ruined children and relationships, and ruined lives. They're the byproducts of our cultural apostasy from Christ and from the law and from the gospel. The more atheistic, the more evolutionary, the more anti-Christian our culture becomes, the more murderous, the more dead, the more sexually depraved, and the more immoral it will become. Now, what's behind the sexual revolution? I actually have a book by a, a really good creationist just started reading. John Sanford wrote a book called The Sexual Holocaust. And he's talking about the, the, the trail of wreckage of these ideas is absolutely unfathomable. But what's behind it all? What's behind the sexual revolution and all the deviant immorality and the promiscuity and the, and the infidelity and the pornography that's rampant today? What's behind all of that? Lies. Lies. The unbelieving, anti-Christian, anti-biblical world around you lies constantly about sex and about marriage. What's portrayed about sex in movies, in television series, and in the media is perfectly false. Casual and promiscuous sex with many partners is never good, never fulfilling, never intimate, never loving. Insofar as any movies, any shows, any media that you've ever seen portrays it as such, you are being lied to. Sadly, many people believe those lies. Sex was just supposed to be a sacred, precious, guarded gift, reserved entirely for marriage, has become a source of discouragement, heartache, disease, frustration, and pain. It was never intended by God to be any of those things. Promiscuous people have no idea what sex is about or what it's for. They don't enjoy it as God intended it either. Even for the promiscuous and the sexually immoral, sex is a source of frustration. It's a source of disillusionment, disappointment, heartache. I want to help you recover a biblical view of God's gift of sex this morning as we begin our study of the seventh commandment. Consider the commandment itself. It's a prohibition. You shall not commit adultery. So the triune God from on high who created you has said, you must not do this. Do not commit adultery. The biggest lie our culture tells people today is that sex is a right that everybody has. Y'all need to write that down. It's not. No one has the right to this. It's a privilege for the married. It's a privilege for married people and for married people only. Sex is to be done only with the person you're married to. And marriage is always only between one man and one woman. Who would ever have thought we'd have to say that? Marriage is the only context in which sex is to be enjoyed. Like all of God's commandments, obedience in this area is the path to joy, to peace, to an intact conscience and fruitfulness in the service of God. Disobedience to the seventh commandment in this area, disobedience in this area leads to a ruined conscience. Difficulties in marriage, joyless worship of God on the Sabbath day, and a heavy heart that carries unending shame and guilt. The unbelieving and godless world around you 
you need to understand this, it really doesn't struggle much with guilt over sexual sin anymore. If it, if it ever did at all. It doesn't struggle with feeling guilty about depravity. Because it seems like the world system of evil has done everything it can do to turn the conscience off. The TV shows that I watched growing up in the late 1970s and early 1980s, they, they got worse and worse as I grew up. I watched the Brady Bunch when I was a kid. Y'all remember the Brady Bunch? And it was pushing the line. I mean, it was nigh unto scandalous. They showed the married mom and dad sitting up together with their pajamas on in bed. That was scandalous. Like, we don't let our kids watch the scandalous stuff. Seriously? The entertainment industry has seared the consciences of several generations of Americans today. And there's even an industry of pornography. Did you know that pornography businesses in America bring in more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined? The world around you that is wallowing in unbelief and on its way to hell, it doesn't care a whole lot about sexual immorality. It's so commonplace and is done and spoken about with such detached ambivalence that if you want to see up close where the war is for purity, where the war is for sexual purity, you got to come into a Christian church. Here's where we fight it. Here's where we fight it. Being sexually chaste and pure, it's no small task in any culture or for any person. There's nothing really unique about our age that makes it particularly hard in this area, particularly difficult to be pure in this way. But our nation, with all of its points of access to immorality on the internet and everything else, we especially do need to be on guard, however. It's a particular vice that people deal with today. And here's something you need to remember. No matter what culture you live in, or what century you live in, or how desensitized the world around you might be to this, God's attitude about sexual sin hasn't changed at all. That was the thing I kept wondering, why, why are people becoming more tolerant towards the, the grossest abominable kinds of sexual deviance? I remember telling fellow ministers and elders, God hasn't changed at all on this issue. The culture around us has, but God hasn't at all. So why would we go along with them? We represent God. God doesn't change on the issue. God requires us to be chaste. And adultery, physical adultery in marriage was not only a sin in the Old Testament, it was a capital crime. Adultery was punishable by death. For many new Christians, when they're first converted, sexual immorality is the issue. It's the issue that the Holy Spirit brings into clearest focus as the biggest problem they've got to deal with now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the, the struggle goes on. As I said, the unbelieving world around you, it's not really fighting or struggling to be sexually pure, but when people in our culture come to know Christ, they suddenly realize this is an area I've got to learn how to follow Christ in. Christians know they ought to be chaste. We know we, we should be sexually pure. Sexuality is a precious gift from God. Satan's mockery of it in the world and the world's indulgence in that mockery has turned a precious gift into a scourge that has ruined countless lives, countless marriages, countless fruitful ministries have been destroyed by sexual sin, and countless churches have been blown apart by sexual sin. 
And I'll tell you, sexual sin is, has made sex a difficult subject to preach and talk about. I hate talking about it. <laughs> I do. Because it's so uncomfortable. Because our culture is so depraved and so vile when it comes to this issue. And I kept thinking, I'm going to get this one done in one sermon, but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> so many people today inside and outside the church, they associate sex almost exclusively with guilt and shame. I've talked to married people. I've talked to married people through the years who've told me. It, it took several years to get used to not feeling guilty. Because <laughs> that's all I've ever felt with regard to this. But do you see why God wants this to be reserved for marriage? Entirely reserved for marriage? Is that not a terrible tragedy and a great evil? For many young people today who will one day be married, sex has only been a force for destruction and emotional hardship. Why? Because they fail to obey God and trust him. This is to be reserved entirely and completely for marriage. And for those who have sinned sexually, they suddenly find themselves in a Christian marriage and now this gift of God, which has brought them nothing but heartache and sadness and shame and darkness and emotional difficulty, now is supposed to be something they're supposed to rejoice in and enjoy and look forward to and communicate with their spouse about it and be, be happy about. And it's difficult to think that way. Our culture's ruined it. We've ruined it. Sexual sin is so destructive. The struggle to be pure it persists. It persists for the single and it persists after you get married too. But as I said, it's only in the Christian church. Here's where the battle is. The world out there is not fighting. It's not, it's not battling to be sexually pure. It doesn't care. But if you're a Christian and you're indwelt by the Spirit, you're at war. I know you are. You're at war with this. In the Christian church, there's a battle to be sexually pure and, and loyal and fought word and deed in your marriage. I want to encourage you. I want to tell you don't grow weary in that battle. Don't give up. Fight the good fight. Fight until you've achieved victory and purity, but always keep your guard up. You never get there completely. We're always vulnerable to attack. You and I need to be sexually pure. So I say to myself, I say to all of us, get control of your body. You can overcome these things in Christ. Do not be defeated. Get radical. Become accountable to someone. Job 31 verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Job said. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? I have made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to do it. Pray every day that God would create and maintain a fiery hatred in your heart for sexual sin. And when the temptations come and when they arise, immediately call upon Christ for help. You know, guilt and shame are a good thing. It's actually a book. I, I've, I've not read it. I have the Kindle version of it. It's called The Grace of Shame. Shame's a good thing when it's shame over sin. Those are lost gifts of grace on people today. They think if you're ashamed or guilty about anything, there's something wrong with that. No, no, no. We should be ashamed and we should feel guilty if we're doing things that are wrong or evil. Jeremiah the prophet, the last prophet to the southern kingdom before God destroyed it. One of the ways that he rebuked them, he does this twice, verbatim twice in Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 8. He says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. What does that mean to blush? So the blood runs up into your face, your face gets red, we've all, we've all blushed before. 
You blush when you're ashamed. And he's saying these people are so hard-hearted. They commit abomination and their faces are as white as snow. They, they don't blush anymore. And God said to them through Jeremiah, Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punishment, punish them, they shall be cast down. Conscience and the guilt and shame it brings are gifts of God. Guilt over sexual sin is a good thing. Y'all needed to know this. Your conscience is a gift of God. It's a safety mechanism. It's a safety mechanism. Just as the nerve endings are all over your body. You know, we drink a lot of coffee in my house. And one of the greatest calamities we've ever faced is when the little hot water thing that you push a button stops working. It stopped working. So we were heating up water for coffee in pots on the stove. You know, I would have built a bonfire outside to do it if, if necessary. <laughs> now, usually in the morning, there would be a pot or two still sitting there. I'd, I'd clean them up for the day and just run over there and grab them. I had my earbuds in, was listening to something. And I, I forgot that I had just started boiling water. And it was boiling. And ran over there and grabbed the side of the, the steel pan. What do you do when you do that? <laughs> Well, I immediately dropped it. Why? Because the nerve endings in my fingers, they work real well, I assure you. It was very hot. And dropped it. Just water everywhere and slinging my hand and, you know, running cold water on it and everything else. What if the nerve endings in my hand didn't work? I would have brought it over to the sink, cleaned it, put it away. I would have done some damage to my fingers. Nothing catastrophic, but definitely some. You know, for a very long time, scientists really didn't know what leprosy was. They didn't really know how it worked. It's, only, it's been in recent history they have discovered this disease does not actually eat away at your flesh and cause it to fall off. You know what it does? It kills all your nerve endings. And people literally rub their fingers off and rub their noses off and their eyebrows off. And think about all, all the times that you have pain, you know what not to do. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. You, you hurt your finger, you put a bandaid on it. What if you never could feel anything in your fingers? You would gnarl them down to the nubs. And folks, that's what's happened when it comes to sexual sin. We're so used to it. It's like we've got Hansen's disease. That's what leprosy is technically called. Hansen's disease of the conscience. And so we're, we're rubbing our spiritual faces down, our fingers down. People don't feel it anymore. That's what happens when... A culture becomes desensitized to sexual sin. We don't feel it anymore. People don't feel guilty anymore. The nerve endings of conscience are broken. We've got leprosy of the conscience. But when a person is born again by God's spirit, and you all know this, those of you that are true Christians, thank the Lord today that you feel that, that just tearing sense of guilt at times. That tearing sense of, of shame. When a person is born again, that conscience becomes tender and sensitive. God reignites the nerve endings. Sexual sin is very serious. It's very evil, dear congregation. And today, abomination is celebrated in the streets. It's paraded in the streets today. People's faces are like stone. They're unashamed. They don't even care. Isaiah said the same thing, sort of thing that Jeremiah did. Isaiah 3.9, the look on their countenance witnesses against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. They stand up and announce it to the world. No shame at all. They don't hide it, it says. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. The ability to feel shame, to experience guilt, are gifts of God. 
And you know, sometimes God withdraws that ability as an act of judgment against a nation. There's a famous story about a, a jetliner that crashed into the side of a mountain in the Alps, and all 200 people were instantly killed. They were going through the fog, and when they, they got the black box, they actually listened to a recording of the pilot. And the voice of the sensor there in the fog was saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the guy punched the box and said, shut up, gringo. And then two minutes later, they all died. And that's kind of what we're doing today. Our conscience is like that. God's calling out, don't go here. Don't click on that. Get rid of this. You got to become accountable. You got to start fighting. And it's like, we want to push it aside. We want to turn it off. Most people react like that pilot. Eh, go away. Leave me alone. The Barna Group and Covenant Eyes, which is a pornography accountability software company, released these statistics not too long ago about pornography. After pointing out that initial exposure to pornography usually begins in childhood and then progresses, listen to these. Over 40, mil 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. 40 million. The average visit lasts six minutes, 29 seconds. There are around 42 million porn sites, which totals about 370 million pages of porn. 47% of families in the U.S. reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marit marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to it. 94% of children will see it before the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornography. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76 actively search for pornography. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for porn use regularly. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for pornography at least once a month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they've never watched porn. 87% of Christian women have watched it. 55% of married men, 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. And then the last statistic, only 7% of pastors say their church has a program to help people struggling with this issue. 7%. Sexual sin paralyzes the church's efforts to fulfill the Great Commission. I really think it's one of the reasons the church of Jesus Christ struggles so much to win people to Christ. How can we communicate the joy we have in Christ and and his, his saving mercy if our minds are sewers of iniquity. Sexual sin has hurt the cause of Christ perhaps more than any other sin in modern history. It's a tool of the devil. It's worked very well. The internet is a blessing and a curse. The internet is a lot like sex itself. It's a gift that can be so easily corrupted. The internet has brought sound biblical exposition, biblical theology, indeed the true gospel itself, to places that it could not reach before. But as long as wickedness exists in the world, that which is such an incredible source of good can also become an incredible source of vice, wicked habits. So the thing for us to remember, the thing to bear in mind, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 6 here, our bodies are gifts of God to us. 
God creates each human being with a biological sex, male or female. You all need to know transitioning is a lie. It's never happened. It never can happen. It never will happen. Human beings do not have sexual orientations either that they at some point discover. That's a lie. It's mythology. God creates male and female and equips them and commands them to act accordingly. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So there's the introductory material. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6.15 through 20 now. The second part of our message to you this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Here Paul says, verse 15, God's word, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay, stop there. Our entire person, our body, our soul belongs to Christ. But here in this area of sexual sin, our bodies in particular are not ours. Our bodies don't belong to us. They are the purchased possession of God. Everything that we are, everything that we have belongs to the Lord Jesus. We are his property, his purchased property. He owns us. Our bodies are not our own to do with whatever we want. All is under the lordship of our master, our king, the one who died for us, loved us, gave his life to redeem us, and whose death reconciled us to God and guaranteed us an eternity of blessed happiness in heaven. Our bodies are now, once we are redeemed, justified, adopted into God's family, our bodies are supposed to be living sacrifices now. Whatever time I've got left, whatever I was doing before, that, that stops now. Now my body my, is a living sacrifice to God, to the one who died for me and rose again. That body you have is only to be used for the service of God. And sex is for committed marriage only. In that context, it's a blessing. It's something we're commanded to do. We're commanded to enjoy. In fact, in marriage, it's a sin to deprive one another of this. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. The, the Holy Spirit speaking in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians here says, Do not deprive one another except for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Those are divine commands. When a person becomes a Christian, they become a member of Christ. They used to live for themselves, for pleasure, for lust, for whatever their current agenda was, but all that changes when they come to the Lord Jesus. Jesus was nailed to a cross and died there for his chosen people. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Sexual sin is living for yourself. Living for yourself and not for the one who died for you and rose again. The sexual component of our biological gift that God gave us, our sex that God gave us, it belongs to him now. Why can't we just trust him? Why can't we just trust him? We're to act accordingly. The word of God commands us outside of marriage. It says abstain from sexual immorality. There was a, there was a singles ministry at the church in Ohio. And the, the couple that led it, anytime anything controversial came up, they would ask me to do it. And I was like, well, that's fine because everybody hates me anyway. So, 
well, how much is too much? How much is too much? I'm like, look at the text. Look at First Thessalonians 4.3. Abstain from sexual morality. So there's your answer. None. Outside of marriage, sex will destroy you. Inside marriage, it's a gift of God. If only people would just trust God and obey him in that area, they would see the truth. You know, there's that passage, I think it's in Proverbs 4 or 5 or somewhere in the early chapters, the, the person that would not listen to instruction. And they say, oh, woe is me. They get to the end of their life and, oh, how I was almost on the verge of ruin. I did not listen to my instructors. I did not hear what they said. I didn't take it to heart. I didn't change. I didn't modify my behavior. I had good counselors and I refused to listen to them. So I'm telling you, don't be that person. Listen. Men in all places and all times constantly seem like, you know, they, they want to prove themselves. In terms of how tough they are and how athletic they are or how much metal they can throw up or whatever. How powerful and intimidating they are. But I want to tell you something. There's nothing softer, weaker, and more pathetic than a man who can't control himself sexually. There's nothing softer, weaker, or more pathetic. I don't care how much you can squat, deadlift, bench, or whatever. That man who doesn't have control of his own sexual urges is soft. You want to prove you're a tough guy, you're strong, you're worthy of respect? Here it is. Be sexually pure. Don't lust for women. Be loyal in your thoughts, words, and imaginations and your internet usage to either your future wife or the wife that you're married to. Be a one-woman man and get control of your body. Remember what Jesus said. That verse, every man that's been in the church for more than six months can quote it from memory, right? I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The commandment is not just about outward adultery. It's about the theater of our minds. It's about what we imagine. It's about that dark place. Nobody sees it but God and me. And Jesus says, oh yes, the commandment extends even there. It's for our good that God commands us to wait for marriage. It's for our good that he commands us to do that. Even the secular studies that have been done have shown again and again that people wait till they're married and they're faithful to one another and they don't look at pornography and they, they maintain fidelity to, their, to the person they're married to over the long haul. This aspect of their life will be wonderful. God does know what he's talking about. No guilt, no shame, none of that associated with it. But the promiscuous and the porn addict and the self-indulgent and the pervert, they don't understand what sex is all about. The stuff you see on TV and the movies is a lie. They just don't get it. I remember a, a Christian man praying in a group setting with myself. and I, he, he uttered a sentence that was so glorious, it was life-altering. And I've prayed it ever since. It was with a group of men holding hands. He said, Lord, give each of us here a single-minded devotion to our wife as the only love that we have on earth and the only one we have eyes or thoughts for. I thought, well, it gave me the chills. Like, wow, that's perfect. Paul introduces this, this brief, divinely inspired paragraph on sexual purity with a rhetorical question that every member of that Corinthian church already knew the answer to. You see it in verse 15 again? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Of course they knew that. Yeah, we know that. You taught us that when you were here before. We know that. 
Look at the next uh, question. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. People forget that. The sexually immoral, the porn addict. This is supposed to be for the one flesh union you have with the one person and no one else ever. If we got that into our minds and hearts, sexual sin would just be so repulsive to us. How can we take this precious gift of God and adulterate it like this? Think about what Paul is going to go on to describe in 1 Corinthians 12, a few chapters later. Every one of God's regenerated elect who's part of a local church, they're part of Jesus' body. They're they're the hands and the feet and the eyes and the nose. And their, their talents are essential to that local expression of the body of Christ. So the idea that members of the body of Christ in the world would be joining themselves to prostitutes is unthinkable. So here's the question that the Holy Spirit is posing to us. Can all of those precious parts of Jesus' body in this world, Jesus' very hands, his feet, his nose, his ears, can they be joined to prostitutes, real or imagined? Paul quotes Genesis 2.23, the two shall become one flesh. Not the three or the four or the ten. There are so many implications from that glorious statement of the marriage bond. The two shall become one flesh. I say to you, God by creation design wants a one woman man and a one man woman. So young people, single people, there is no point to romantic involvement or interest in anyone unless you're old enough to be married or pretty close to being old enough to be married. You must never be romantically interested in an unbeliever either. How presumptuous is that? You think you're going to save them? Do not marry someone for what you hope they might be one day. You got to marry them for what they are now. It's a sin to marry a non-Christian. If you can't see yourself married to someone for the rest of your natural life, move on. Don't be a fool. Marriage and sex are that serious. The two become one flesh before God, says Paul there. So brothers, we must have a single-minded devotion to that one woman that we one day will be married to or are married to now. Because we are not and we cannot be one flesh with more than one woman. One commentator wrote this, quote, He who unites himself to a harlot has a common existence with her. There is no purely sexual sin. You see what the, the, the Bible is saying here? It's not merely that. It's not merely a violation of sexuality. The spirit of the brothel and the spirit of Christ mutually exclude one another. End quote. That's why that prayer of that Christian man was so stirring. Lord, give me a single-minded devotion to my wife. As my only love on earth and the only one I have eyes or thoughts for. That's one of the most important parts of biblical, strong, masculine manhood. You want to be a tough guy? You want to be a man? You want to be strong, responsible? Someone that's worthy of being looked up to as an example? Then abstain from any form of sex before marriage. And be completely and entirely devoted to your wife 
to quote our larger catechism, devoted to her in your, quote, imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, end quote. Never look with lust on anyone. Biblical manhood is not about combat sports. It's not about lifting weights or football or smashing beer cans on your forehead. It's about godly self-control and and godly chastity. It's about loving your wife, even if she's really sick, if she's had a bad few years. It's about loving her no matter what. It's about those marriage vows, loving your wife and only your wife in your thoughts, your words, your deeds. Get control of your body. Get control of your mind. The Holy Spirit asks that rhetorical question. Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. It's not just a violation of your body. You are joined to that person. Verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We who are one spirit with the Lord, we who ourselves are the very bride of Christ, how can we betray him by being sexually immoral? Marriage in our lives opens our hearts to the greatest of joys and the most wonderful friendship and communion with our spouse, but it also exposes us to potential heartache that is indescribably painful. Remember, when we're converted, when someone's born again, the, the way scripture describes that, it's a, it's a betrothal. You're now engaged to Christ. And you'll be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You're betrothed. You become engaged to him. We're sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but by whom your seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb you're now engaged to was reserved by Him. So act like you're going to the marriage supper. Be loyal to the Lord by being loyal to your wife. Do not commit adultery. We're made one spirit with the Lord himself. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 too, I have betrothed you to one husband. Isn't that a glorious way of describing conversion? You who believe in Jesus now, I've betrothed you to Jesus now. I've betrothed you to him as a chaste virgin, he says. At the end of all things, as I said, that great banquet planned by God, paid for by the blood of Christ, a table furnished by the Holy Spirit, the marriage supper of the Lamb of God to his chaste and his pure church, The church is the bride of Christ. So how can the members of Jesus' bride betray and be disloyal to him in this way? How can we be joined to internet harlots and adulterous lovers and bold and sexually immoral imaginations and actions? How inappropriate is all of this? The person that you will one day marry or that you're married to now, they deserve to have all of you to themselves. In the marriage vows you make to one another and you make before God, you swear. You swear to God and witnesses watching. Hear the words. Forsaking all others. Keeping yourself only for her. Only for him. Forsaking all others. That is a promise. I will not commit adultery. 
And everyone says in response to that oath, a whole bunch of you sitting here said, I do. I promise. God wants a one-woman man from the married man. He wants a one-woman man from the single man too. Preparing himself for one woman. Keep yourself, keep your mind pure for that one woman. Keep yourself and keep your mind pure for that one man that you'll be married to one day. Become one flesh with one day. I just want to tell you, trust God on this one. Just trust him. Pray for your future spouse. Discipline your body. Get control of your body now. Paul said to that little church in Thessalonica, and he wasn't able to be there very long. I think that city, they struggled with sexual immorality there. Really, the whole Mediterranean world was was a pretty immoral place. And he told them in 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. I think that's our body, not not the wife, but our body in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. God commands us to possess our own vessel, our own body, in sanctification and honor. It's a command to get control of yourself. Understand what you need to stop doing in terms of habits, where you need to stop going in terms of habits, who you need to stop hanging around with in terms of habits. We're commanded to know how to be in control of our bodies and to be sexually moral and sanctified with them. And yet the the struggle goes on, doesn't it? The temptations are still there. It's very important to remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape so that you can bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Always know there is an escape. You can't say it was just too much. I could not, I could not resist. Remember the smallest church in the history of mankind? Joseph in Egypt, how many people in that congregation? One, for years and years and years. And he's got Potiphar's wife harassing him. Genesis 39.9 is a statement for the ages. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice he doesn't say sin against Potiphar, sin against you, sin against my body, but sin against God. Sexual activity in marriage is the husband, the wife, communicating their exclusive love to one another, to the person they covenanted before God and witnesses to keep themselves for. Sex is supposed to be a precious gift in that context. And you know, that's, that's why idolatry in scripture is likened to what? It's likened to sexual sin. What did the prophets call Israel with their lust for idolatry and everything else? He called them prostitutes. He called them embracing harlotry and you've committed adultery against me. God betrothed us to himself. And Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 too, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, just like God is jealous for our worship, our loyalty. And Paul says, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Our walk with Jesus is soiled and violated by idolatry, just as a person's marriage is soiled and violated by adultery and by sexual sin. You know, dear ones, one of the most practical day in and day out ways that you can please the Lord 
fulfill the great commission and be like Christ is to be sexually pure in your marriage and in your life. You want to please and glorify the Lord? Be pure in this way. Pray that God would give you a hatred of sexual sin, that he'd release you from bondage to it. I want to tell you with all the force I can muster, I hate the lies that our culture has told my parents' generation, me, my generation, and our children's generation. I hate those lies with every fiber of my soul. I think Paul did too when, in his generation. And I hate the way our culture has made a mockery of such a blessing, such a wonderful gift as family, marriage, the God-ordained biblical roles for men and women. Those are mocked today, even in the church, by professing Christians. And the bond of love that a devoted and faithful husband and wife can have and enjoy. How that bond of friendship, trust, and intimacy and love is able to sustain them, to shelter them from the world around us with its horrors and its nightmares that we now live in. Family and love and marriage was intended by the Lord to be that which would sustain us in the midst of a hostile universe. Isn't it sad it's become such a source of heartache? Look at verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's the Apostle Paul's answer. That's the Holy Spirit's answer to sexual sin. Shall I take the members of Christ and join them to a harlot? Do you not know that you're indwelt by the Spirit? Do you not know that you're, you're part of the, the church, that you're the, the bride of Christ? He that is joined to a, to a prostitute is not just sinning sexually, that he's one spirit with her. The two shall become one. God created that, that sexual bond just for marriage. And he's saying, remember, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Your body, I don't care where you've been or what you've done, your body is still sacred. It's the special creation of God. If you're a Christian, you have been redeemed, including your body and your emotions and your love to serve and glorify God now. Sex is not a right. And there's nothing manly or masculine about it. When you see young men who brag about their sexual exploits, I was forced to listen to that day in and day out, starting in seventh grade until I was done with college. That's not an indication that someone's a man. It's that they're a child. In a man's body, plain and simple. We are not our own. Sexual immorality, which is any indulgence of sexual pleasure outside of marriage, either physically or in our imaginations, it desecrates the very temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, of Christ, and of the Father. The whole Trinity indwells us. Jesus taught us that, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The dwelling place of God, our very bodies. God commands us that they're to be sexually pure, free from adultery. Pornography, the sins associated with it, it's a scourge in the church. None of us are above any sin. If David can have such a terrible collapse, then I think anybody can. We have to keep our guard up at all times. At the Westminster Confession of Faith, the greatest summary of biblical truth ever written, has a chapter called Of the Perseverance of the Saints. It's just three bullet points. And the first two describe that 
Those that are truly saved are saved because they were unconditionally elected by God. They were chosen by God. God is the one who initiates that. God preserves them to the end. And all to the glory of God. Jesus gets everyone that he came into the world to save. But point number three is a little soul stirring. Point three says, nevertheless, even though they will end up in heaven because Jesus will not fail. It says, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins. And for a time, continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. Okay, stop there for a minute. I've seen that happen before. People get involved in sin and they are true believers and they just think, I'm not a Christian. Well, that's part of the problem here is if you go off into this kind of sin, God's going to deprive you of those graces and comforts. It says they can have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, but they're still believers. They're still Christians. It says hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Really? So people that are going to end up in heaven can go through that? Yeah. Read your Bible. It's in there. Look at David. David spoke about it like having his bones crushed by God, the bones that you have broken. Lord, teach me to rejoice again in my salvation and deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed and the guilt of all my sin. But David was still a believer throughout that whole thing. Just repent. Repent. God is, is eager to restore you, to forgive you. If you have a struggle in this area, if you have a struggle in this area, and it's not like a little sapling that you can pull up out of the ground and discard because it's brand new, but it's been there for a while and it's more difficult, please talk to me. Talk to Roger. Talk to Jim. When it comes to pornography or any other sin, adultery, what you need to remember in every single case, in every single temptation, if you're a Christian, you have a choice. You have a choice. Every time. I don't care how deep the habit has gone or how deep those roots are. Every single time you have the power to say no. I will not. You're never tempted beyond what you're able. Sexual immorality, it's a soul destroyer. It's a marriage intimacy and trust destroyer. It's a church destroyer. It's a great commission destroyer. And there's freedom and there's liberation from it. No matter what, never neglect the means of your own preservation. Walk in the Spirit, meaning study your Bible. When you feel the most like not doing it, you got to go do it more that day. When you're the most wiped out, tired, exhausted, I don't feel like going to church today, that's when you slap yourself in the face and get up and go. Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if you don't walk in the Spirit and you neglect the means of your preservation, you're going to do a face plant. If you need accountability, if you need prayer, if you need help of any kind because you're struggling in this area, get help. Get help from your shepherds. We want to help you overcome these things in Christ. Your elders love you and care about you. We want you to walk in, with Christ and be content and be strong in the Lord and satisfied in Him. And remember God's specific admonition. Let's let the Holy Spirit have the final word here. Verse 19 and 20 again. Here, here Paul, and by, by the way, before I read this, I was talking to someone this past week of dear beloved Christians. He says, Paul's just mean sometimes. I said, no, he's really not. This guy really loved these people. He really cared about them. But he is letting them have it, isn't he? 
Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He's saying that in the face of the sexual sin that was going on in, in Corinth. In verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So my final words to you, don't believe Satan's lies. Don't believe the lies of your own sinful heart. Believe God's truth and trust him. Do not commit adultery. Save yourself for marriage. If you're married, focus all of your energy in that area just on your spouse. Turn your back on sexual sin. Get help. Be accountable. Be chaste and godly. And remember this. No matter what you've done or how you feel or what you've been up to, Jesus' blood and righteousness are always sufficient to forgive us and to save us. So you can come at me all you want, but I, I just don't understand how God can, can forgive me. I keep doing this and I keep struggling in these ways. And how can God forgive me? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but, but I do this so stubbornly. I sin so stubbornly. Jesus forgives even more stubbornly. His grace is even more stubborn than your desire to sin. His love is so great, I can't even describe it to you. Like Paul said to the Ephesians, I pray for them. I pray for you all that somehow maybe you'd be able to understand the height and width and length and depth to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Yes, I know we struggle with sin and we sin so much and we wonder at times and we journal about it. How can God still love me? Because he has the perfect basis upon which to do so. The death of his son and his perfect righteousness. God remembers our frame that we are but dust and he knows how much we struggle. And I want to encourage you, as I said, I don't care how much you have fallen in this area, the blood of Christ and the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of God and the love of God the Father for you is so vast, so great, so indescribably wonderful that I can only assure you as Nehemiah and the Levites assured those repentant Israelites whose families and houses and temple was destroyed, who were brought back there, and they're weeping over their sin. And the, the Levites prayed, are you not a God who is ready to pardon, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness? Never doubt it. The love of God can forgive us, even of all of our failures and all of our sins as Christians. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the all-sufficiency of the finished work of Christ. Forgive us for our unbelief when at times we struggle with sin or even with this sin, this sexual sin, and we discard ourselves. We put ourselves even above you. You are the God who's ready to pardon, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to help us rebuild and start over and brush ourselves off and, and set our faces forward and pursue holiness. Help us to know that indeed you are a God who is ready to pardon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.